It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey friends, welcome back to Kubrick's Universe. It's big here, covers a lot of space. As our colleague James Robert Sherman is wont to point out, all roads in popular culture seem to lead back to Stanley Kubrick. We all know by now the impact Kubrick had on everything from cinema to television to commercial advertising to the use of classical music scores to innumerable references in The Simpsons and on and on. But how far a reach was Stanley's grasp? Beyond providing the inspiration for classic rock albums like The Who's Who's Next, Led Zeppelin's Presence and others, I mean, how far did it go? I know what you're asking. Did he have something to do with shooting an industrial film for the Seafarers International Union? In 1953, 25-year-old Stanley Kubrick shot his first color film, The Seafarers. In doing so, he also scored an early payday as a young independent filmmaker. Lost to the public for decades, Kubrick's industrial short film for the SIU was ultimately brought to the attention of Kubrick scholars and fans by an intrepid young enthusiast and film worker himself named Alexander Pietrzak. Quite a ways back, Alexander set out on a mission to see if a copy existed. He did so for one reason, to help ensure Kubrick's first color film might see the light of day as the necessary preservation of a historical document. In 1997, he received a VHS copy from the Seafarers International Union itself. He learned that the original production company had long gone out of business with all its assets liquidated. Turns out the short film had been quote unquote discovered by a man during an inventory screening in 1972. Alexander remained tireless in his efforts. After engaging in a ton of correspondence and meeting with disappointment along the way, long story short, Alexander persevered. And we fans of all things Stanley are grateful. This episode takes us back a bit into our own vaults, as Alexander was kind enough to be an early guest on Kubrick's Universe. Among other stories, in this episode, 
we'll hear Alexander share his tale of why it was important to him personally to be given the blessing of the Kubrick estate to release the short film to how the seafarers went from near total obscurity to finally being made available by the U.S. Library of Congress through archival restoration. Indiana Jones himself would be proud. We'll also hear excerpts from the rare audio commentary track on the Seafarers DVD provided by actor-director Keith Gordon and Roger Avery of Pulp Fiction screenwriting fame. There might even be a personal connection from Alexander's childhood to a film Kubrick would make 20 years later. Did young Alexander cross paths with Stanley on the set of Barry Lyndon? Well, you're going to have to stay tuned to find out. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us once again on Kubrick's Universe. So we like to change it up. We've got something a little different for you today. Uh, a really cool guy, cool guest, and uh, esteemed member of Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Now, I want to make sure I pronounce uh, your last name first, so uh, help me out with that. Alexander? Pietrzak. Okay, I would have got it right. Guys, uh, Alexander Pietrzak. Uh, has been in Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society for some time, always posting really interesting stuff, clearly knows his Kubrick. And uh, I noticed that he was uh, friends on Facebook with uh, Nick Fugazi, uh, one of our beloved admins and also all-around awesome dude. And uh, we were chatting. I said, you know, tell, tell me about Alexander. You know, he seems like a really cool guy. I said, oh, he's a great guy. He knows so much about Kubrick, he's funny. We have, you know, a few side conversations or whatever. And as it turns out, that same afternoon, I'm looking through my collection of Kubrick Blu rays and I grab the Kino Lorber Blu ray of Kubrick's Fear and Desire. I'm looking at the packaging and I swear this is all true. Same day, I'm asking Nick, who is this Alexander guy? He seems cool. I grab the packaging and I see that. Uh, the Seafarers, which accompanies Fear and Desire on the Library of Congress Kino Blu-ray, has been licensed by Alexander Pietrzak. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Is this that guy? And so I, I cross-checked the spelling of your last name. I had to know for <laughs> sure. And then, I, and then I get on the phone with Nick and I'm like, dude, did you know that that your friend, Alexander, this guy that we were just talking about, he owns the rights to the seafarers. And he's like, what? And <laughs> that's a true story. Same day. Funny. And there, and there you go. So, I mean, look, it, it was uh, a no-brainer that we should get to uh, hang out and talk with you um, about that. And uh, we're going to get there. But I just got some general questions to begin. And... Uh, uh, as a way of introduction, I'll just say, Alexander Pietrzak, thank you so much for joining us on Kubrick's Universe. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure, bud. Uh, can you just tell us uh, about your background and uh, some of your work in the film industry? 
I started out working in a movie theater, I think like you you did, and mm-hmm. I eventually got up to being a projectionist. And uh, one day we had a rough cut come in of a movie called Benny and June. And Carol Littleton, the editor, she came in. She, she uh, edited E.T. And she came in with her assistant, Raul. And uh, we ended up talking about films. And uh, I asked, and specifically Kubrick, and he introduced me to perfume and that Kubrick was going to make this movie. This is back in the early nineties. And so, uh, we chatted about Kubrick and then I kind of started asking about how to get into the film industry. And, um, and so he kind of gave me a few pointers. And then a few months later, I was down in Tucson at university of Arizona. And, um, I wanted to, I was going to see if I could get onto a film and, um, I didn't know of anything. So I went down to the, uh, the Tucson Film Commission, and they, they said right away, they were like, we got some big film coming in during the summer if you're going to be here. Uh, it's it's going to be big. And mm. I was like, oh, okay. And he said, and I go, well, what's the name? He goes, Tombstone. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know anything mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. it. Mm. And so I was like, oh, I got to I gotta get on that. And it's so I, I... He said, I'm your, I'm your Huckleberry. It was a place where a man could start over where a fortune could be made. They say every town has a story. Tombstone has a legend. Who is he? That's Wider. Better name for himself as a peace officer. I heard of you. I'm retired. You must be Doc Holliday. You retired too? Not me. I'm in my prime. I, I, I was trying to get into either editing or the, um, the camera department. And so... Um, Long story short, I ended up on this film, and I, I went down to the offices. They, they were like a Holiday Inn down there, and uh, that's where they set up production. They just kind of took over this Holiday Inn. And uh, I went in one day, and I didn't know who the DP was, director of photography. And uh, oh, right. so so I said, well, who, who's, who's the guy? Who's, you know, who's running the show? He goes, and this woman looks at this paperwork. He goes, oh, um, this guy, William Fraker. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's like a big name, you know, because mm-hmm. he shot mm-hmm. films from Spielberg and Polanski and yep. also Bullet. Bullet was a big one. Oh, and yeah. I was like, oh, I'll be working with like this big legend, you know. Mm-hmm. And so and uh, working on this, uh, working on Tombstones, a disastrous film shoot. It's amazing that the film turned out the way yeah. it did. Everybody was getting fired. There was a lot of shouting and there was this big screaming match. And it was amazing just to even get to the end without getting Walking off or quitting. Yeah. Hollywood Pictures presents. The only real law around here is the Cowboys. The story of Wyatt Earp. The first time in our lives we got a chance to stop wandering and finally be a family. Now this is trouble we don't need. If we're going to have a future in this town, it's got to have some law and order. The second assistant director that we had come in um with cosmodos was this guy brian cook who was the assistant director on barry Lyndon and the shining so we ended up talking about occasionally we would talk about kubrick but we were so freaking busy you know it was hard to really kind of corner him and have a long conversation yeah of course and you know he would have these conversations about kubrick with the other producers and fraker and cosmodos they'd all sit around talking about him at the dinner table but unfortunately i was like so far down the the, the pecking order. I wasn't invited to these special dinners where they, he would regale the crew with uh, all his <laughs> stories about Kubrick. So I mm. kind of missed out on that. 
And then one day, we got into a big fight on the set, and uh, he walked off. And so somebody came up to me from the camera department and said, oh, Brian, Brian just quit. He just walked off. And I looked over, and I literally see him walking off into the sunset. <laughs> said he just quit. And then some other guy came in. He was assistant director. It's the whole, it's like a firing line of people just getting fired and walking off. What do you want, Ringo? I want your blood. I want your soul. I want them both right now. They shot your brother. You know, Wyatt Earp was shooting next door. Um, the Kevin Costner film, yeah, and that was apparently going really, really well, and everybody was so happy, and and the, and our production was this joke, and um, and it just turned out that our film ended up being the big hit, and theirs flopped because you just don't know, you don't know. We just kind of got lucky, I guess, on that one. Now the time has come for justice. Yes, maybe you better swear me in. And he has to live up to his reputation. You got a fight coming. <laughs> time none of your problem doc you don't have to mix up in this that is a hell of a thing for you to say to me in a battle the last charge of wired up and his immortals at the okay corral oh my god the west would never forget i want to just uh, sidebar for a second and ask you because not a month or two ago i saw an article online that basically asserted that uh uh kurt russell uh, was kind of in the end the de facto director of uh, the finished film. Any truth? Yeah, in that? I, no. Um, I was. I heard about that a few years ago. I was kind of like really taken aback. I could not believe it. Mm. The the call to go out there and say, and he had he was obviously a really important person on the set as like an executive producer. And mm-hmm. um, but at no point did I ever think to myself, this guy is directing the movie. Right. And okay. Anyone, no one in the camera department, we never had a discussion. There was no, he, I think he was doing stuff um, after each each day. He would come up with a series of shots or things that he wanted in the film as an executive producer and kind of outline things that he wanted in uh, for the next day. So he was doing very important work. Definitely. Right. He was the biggest, the biggest character on the, on the set. You I mean, you really knew he had a lot of presence and he, of course. And he job and everything but i mean to say that you directed the film he's not directing the actors right i mean it's just, it just i think it's i don't know whether he if i don't know whether he's saying that or someone else is coming up with it but it just seems i just don't understand it because anyone who was there would not say that he was directing the movie okay yeah i don't recall uh the article having quotes of of kurt saying oh it was all me but rather it was conjecture maybe you know so-called observations from others who might have been on the set. I don't know if they were, uh, you know, close colleagues uh, of yours, but I'm guessing not. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I was, it, for, for years, I didn't hear about this till probably around, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, someone mentioned it to me. I was like, what? That's absurd. Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Dana Delaney, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, Bill Paxton, Jason Priestley, Sam Elliott, and Charlton Heston. You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me! Justice 
is coming to Tombstone. I, I heard that uh, Synergy, the production company, when they brought in Cosmatis, he kind of really needed a directing gig. And that was part of the deal. Is I'd, I'd heard this later on. I don't know how true it is that he um, he um, he'd agreed to let Kirk take directing credit after he died, which seems really weird to me. I that is. Know. Wow. Oh, wow. I don't know. I mean, you either directed the film or you didn't. I don't know. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Wow. So, um, and then Brian ended up. Brian ended up in. uh, Brian ended up in Eyes Wide Shut, as you know. Yeah. uh, Of of course, I want to get to that. Let Stephen. You have something you want to say? Yeah, he actually co-produced Eyes Wide Shut, didn't he? As well, co-produced, and and I think, and he played. was he a butler at the mansion, maybe? That's right. Yeah. 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 So I just wanted to ask, in, in your uh, time working with Cosmatos, uh, did you ever get to talk with him about Kubrick? Do you know if he was a, a, an ardent fan, a passive one, or did that conversation no, never take place? I didn't. I didn't have a conversation with him about Kubrick. I didn't really talk to him too much. Um, you know, he just... I mean, these guys who are the producers and the directors, they don't really don't like associate with the crew that very, very much, mm. even though you're around them for 16 hours a day sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is a story simple but dramatic. A story about the men who crew our ships, the seafarers. Every seafarer will recognize in what follows something of himself. Familiar scenes, the faces of the men who share his calling, his way of life and maybe something more. Call it a dream fulfilled. I'm Don Hollenbeck. Joseph Conrad wrote a lot of things about the sea, and among other things, he wrote this. The true peace of God begins at any spot a thousand miles from land. And here's something else I came across the other day that interested me very much. Ever since the days of sailing ships, Seafaring has drawn to it men of many different types. And yet they have one thing in common, these men. It's the quality that makes men want to live not in a city or in a town, but in the world. It's a true spirit of independence, and it's always been deeply rooted in the seafaring tradition. And now to go on with this little essay, nobody knows better than a seafaring man that any man, however independent he is, isn't entirely independent. He's a member of something larger, of a family, of a community, of a nation, or bring it back to seafaring. He's a member of a crew, a crew of men like himself, banded together for one essential common purpose. Now the picture you're going to see now is the story of men who are banded together for one essential common purpose. This is a vital story in their daily lives and their achievements. It's a proud story, made possible by the deeds of seafaring men. It's the story of the SIU. So, after that, I, when I was on altmovie.kubrick, the, the kind of the the news yep. group during the 90s. I was on there all the time. And uh, and uh, 
we would always talk about the seafarers. It would come up, you know, and it was like, we're never going to get to see it. It's just like a done deal. No one knows where it is. The Library of Congress yeah. has a print. We're just never going to see it. Just don't even, it's yeah. just not going to happen. And yeah. so I was like, God, I just, it seems crazy to me. There's got to be at least one print around somewhere. I was really kind of, uh, so I, I kind of, when I, at some point I ended up calling, I called them up one time and didn't get anywhere. And then I waited a year or two around the time Kubrick died. It was like before that or just after it or something. Mm. So I called over the Seafarers International Union, which is now in Piney Point, Maryland. And so I kind of got bounced around the phone one day and they ended up, so this woman says, oh, yeah, they, well, they have an AV department. And I go, oh, that sounds promising. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, put me in. Put me through to that person. So I talked to this guy, Harry Geiske, and surprisingly, he knew what that film was right away. Wow. I was like, this is getting, I'm getting a little warm here. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get a copy on VHS for you and put it in the mail. I was like, what? Oh. It was that easy? Wow. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to be the first person <laughs> to see this fucking thing. And so... um it arrives and I'm watching it and then I'm like, okay, this is great. And then I call him back up and he goes, you know, um, I started inquiring actually about, um, getting it onto DVD. You know, that was like my thing. I immediately was like, I need to acquire the rights or whatever I have to do. I'm going to give it a shot. And, um, then at that point he said, well, um, we, we acquired all this stuff recently through, um, a liquidation of the, of the original production company. I forget wow. what the name of it and it all just arrived on a truck one day and it had the original camera negative that Kubrick had spliced all the outtakes everything what yeah that's so he crazy offered, he offered he offered it all to me and he says you can have yeah we, we, you can and I said oh I was like oh my god this would be amazing oh my god and right? so I was like I'm gonna put all this on DVD and just to some people that might not seem very interesting you know because I've mentioned it a couple times to people and they're like well why would you want to look at that who cares about that but yeah. it's the whole process of making a film and I thought this could be kind of fascinating so this is where this is kind of where it gets weird and interesting um so after offering it to me um I call him back the next week he goes he goes I can't find it and I don't know what's going on, but I cannot. I went down to the vault and it's not there. I'm like, oh, uh, let me keep looking. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to a couple of people. We'll, we'll look around. We'll find it for you. So, okay. So this went on for a few months and it was like, it's just not showing up. And he's like getting concerned. It's like, I don't understand because we've seen these film cans around. It's like, they just like disappeared. So mm -hmm. um, around, around this time, that's when I first started hearing that um, Leon Vitelli had um, been instructed by Kubrick in his will to destroy all the, you know, uh, outtakes and negatives, everything. And so I'm like, I wonder if he had something to do with this because around that time, I contacted the estate and I got on the phone with Anthony Freewin. Mm -hmm. for, and, um, and we had like several conversations over the course of several, over the months about, cause I wanted to kind of get signed off on that uh, official uh, Kubrick estate approved kind of DVD. I didn't want right. to think that it was some fly by night thing. Right. Right. It kind of meant a lot to me to have it. So they, they signed off on the artwork eventually and all that kind of, even the back of the text, they kind of looked at it and was kind of, we talked, we went back and forth and they came up with suggestions between Yan Han and, um, and Anthony and, um, and um <clears throat> so i never i never did get that footage and it was never turned up 
And so um, the outtakes, the outtakes, yeah, the, and outtakes the, ex- the spliced outtakes in. Yeah, that. Up. Wow. And um, it was just one of those strange things where I, there was just never any clear answer about what could have happened. Beyond, I mean, it's not like someone took them and then they made money off them because they've never like shown up. Yeah, yet. right, right. It would have surfaced by now. And so I think when I spoke to to Tony, um, uh, he he said, "Yeah, I have a VHS copy of the Seafarers." I, I I guess he'd been in touch with them around the same time I had. And so I was like, "Okay, so they've already touched base with the SIU," and so. Um, they had this VHS copy. And at that point I had a couple of prints of the seafarers that had been sent to me. So they wanted to use those, use one of those prints for a life in pictures, use some clips for the, of the seafarers in the documentary. And right, so I was like, right. I was like, okay. So I sent my print over to, to, um, St. Albans and, and, um, and I also sent some of my Barry Linden posters to get them signed. Of course, you know, you got to get uh-huh. a little something for yourself. Yeah. Yep. And, yep. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, at that point, it became evident that there had been some communication between the SIU and the Kubrick estate. And so I was thinking, this, these prints, were these outtakes, uh, all this raw footage, this, they, they must have either been sent to England to be incinerated or someone high up, way above the AV department, was instructed, uh, made some sort of side deal where if Kubrick dies, you take that footage and you chuck it in the lake or something yeah. it just does not exist anymore um so that was that was the end of that um as far but then i just kind of had to move forward getting the seafarers on to dvd um and at that point i was like well maybe i could get day of the fight and flying padre on there as well you know kind of because the seafarers by itself didn't seem to it was not very substantial right you and know, those are it, those are his first two rko shorts and so I got in touch with RKO, and um, they didn't really know who even owned the rights to them. So they pulled a copyright report, and uh, they were nice enough to forward it to me. And I couldn't – honestly, it was really difficult to read it all. It was just pages and pages of stuff. I still really couldn't figure out who owned the rights. So at the last entry on there was some sort of legal thing, and I was like, oh, I don't know whether that's Kubrick or not. And um, so I just called up Tony Freeway and kind of got into a conversation about Day of the Fight. And based on things that he was saying, it became apparent that they did own the rights. Because I was I was kind of hoping to do this without telling them that I was doing it. So maybe I could kind of, I didn't want to alert them that I was trying to acquire the rights to those two films. Right. Because they could have just been like, they could have put the kibosh on that. You know? Yep. Right. That's smart on your on your part, absolutely. Yeah, so it didn't it didn't it didn't really end up working. I I kind of offered to do I offered to to work with them about it, but they kind of thought about it for a few weeks, and then I kind of got a no on that. And so I was like, eh, okay. They, uh, Yan just said, oh, I kind of just do exclusive deals with Warner Brothers. I, they were just fine, you know. They have a contract with Warner Brothers. That's I'm just some little guy. Um, so. You know, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and you pulled it off. I mean, and in the case with uh, like rare, you know, uh, historical documents of uh, pertaining to Kubrick, it's the case of like, you know, hey, one out of three ain't bad at all. You, no. got, the, you got the seafarers. So around this time, Columbia Pictures heard that I had the seafarers and they were doing the Dr. Strangelove uh, documentaries. Um I forget the name of them right off. We're going to we're going to get to that. It was yeah, there were uh, two documentaries from uh, yeah 
two thousand the year two thousand, and it was called Inside Doctor Strangelove. And something, yeah. So this David Naylor guy calls me up, and we had a, several conversations, and um, he had me doing some stuff that was probably kind of just boring, making other phone calls. But one thing he was trying to do was getting um, the British Film Institute had the. the the pie throwing scene. They had that. And they guess they'd screened it a couple of times. Wow. And so he was, thinking, Oh, I'm going to get this on the, uh, my DVD, you know, I'm, I'm the director. I'm going to get it on there. So I guess he called up Yan Holland and they kind of got into a couple of fights about it. Oh, and, and Holland just didn't want to cooperate, you know? Mm. Um, and in Naylor just could not believe that, that he didn't want to like work with him on, on this, you know, big feature. Well, as as we understand it, you know, Jan being the executor of his estate, like he's, uh, you know, his charge is pretty much to uh, follow to the letter the wishes of uh, Stanley's will. So, yeah. I mean, just to give him the uh, uh, some deference and benefit of the doubt, if he was, you know, yeah. being, uh, you know, combative or obtuse, I'm sure it was, you know, out of loyalty to his his brother in law. But yeah, no, that's interesting. And and you received uh, special thanks and editing credit for the uh, Columbia documentary Inside Doctor Strange Love. Did you not? Yeah, I did. Um, I sent. I can't remember exactly everything I did on that, but I know that there are several things that ended up in the documentary that I sent them. I think the Look magazine and the Fear and Desire stills and mm -hmm, some other mm -hmm. stuff. Those are all mine. Um, Wow. And so anyway, the trade was um, that um, Columbia Pictures would pay for my digital transfer, my digicam of the Seafarers, which is perfect timing because I had I'd got the prints and I hadn't even transferred them yet. So they were offering to do that free kind of as a trade. Wow. Cool. I'm like, oh, God, that's just like perfect bit of timing. Huge. So I um, so I kind of just went forward with with that and then ended up getting getting Roger Avery and Keith Gordon to do the second audio tracks. And Roger Avery, he's, he co-wrote Pulp Fiction, and Keith Gordon, um, for those listening, um, he directed Midnight Clear, Mother Night, uh, Waking the Dead, and is currently he's, he, um, he directs episodes of Fargo, Homeland, Dexter, everything. He's prolific, you know. Has it, has, so it, has, I, has he not also done, did I see him on a, a couple of Game of Thrones uh, directors, or is it, I know it's, I know he did uh, Fargo season three, I love the Fargo series, um, but yeah. anyway, yeah, I mean, and for those listening, Keith Gordon uh, has also been a lifelong Kubrick fan, um, he played, yes. there's, there's another Kubrick connection here, because of course, uh, Rodney Dangerfield's first screen credit was as an extra in yes. The Killing, and then uh, Keith Gordon played Rodney's son Jason in uh, Back to School, and he right. was also uh, yeah, and he and and he was also according to Nick Fugazi was also uh, very active in the alt dot movies dot Kubrick days, um, right back back when Rod Monday founded that and. Um, right. Uh, Nick and uh, Keith had quite a bit of correspondence for a long time. I, I think it's great to see how he's, uh, you know, transformed himself and really made uh, one career leap, a massive one. I, I, mean, I mean, he was in, people forget, he was uh, Angie Dickinson's son in Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. Right. And, yes. and he's, 
he's almost like a Kubrickian, like a uh, young guy with, he's got all these, you know, uh, audio and video equipment gears. And he's got his, he's a teenager with his own little laboratory in the basement. Kind of, kind of like Stanley, you know, you picture him. I'm Keith Gordon. And I'm Roger Avery. Most sources seem to say this was the third film he ever made and uh, was an industrial that he did basically because he needed a job. We all need to make money. We all need to make money. Kubrick never really talked much about this movie. In fact, I don't think he ever talked about this movie. I've never seen an interview where he's acknowledged its existence. Even in all the books I have, and I have tons of books on Kubrick, there's generally just a passing reference to this project yeah, it, as a precursor to... Well, I have the feeling it was something that was done so that he could earn the money to make Fear and Desire. Even his shorts, even Day of the Fight and Flying Padre were subjects that he found and things he wanted to do. This was totally, there was an ad in the this newspaper. This was the Spartacus of that period. Yeah, exactly. His work exactly. We were told that the crew on this were largely not movie crew people. They were guys that worked for the Seafarers Union. So that you know, Kubrick was making this with a bunch of guys who probably knew nothing about filmmaking at all. They were just able hands who were there to help all stuff around. Or at least that's the legend. So what you're looking at is probably all personally done by Stanley Kubrick. Holding yeah. a camera. And setting up whatever couple of lights that he had. And I guess this was all shot in Brooklyn. The actual building itself was the Brooklyn Seafarer's office. It'd be interesting to know if it was his choice to do it in color, though, or if they just said, oh, when we want this in color, of course. Because he was everything he'd done up to this point was black and white. And I'll, I'll bet. I'll bet my bottom dollar that you know Kubrick insisted on doing it in color. Really? Yeah. See, I would go. I would bet just the opposite. Well, he he had done his first two films mm-hmm. in you know in black and white, right? Day of the Fight and Flying Padre, and you know then doing this. If you're gonna do something that where you're a, where you're basically a hired hand and brought in, and you know to just fulfill an assignment, you're gonna bring something to it that's gonna help you grow and mm-hmm. experiment. And he's probably doing a touchstone toward you know his next film. And he was probably doing this as an experiment. To you know, decide should I do my next film in color? Uh-huh. Let's experiment with it. And what he probably discovered was that color was more difficult to work with, you know, um, in motion picture film, and uh, probably didn't have the latitude. He probably couldn't do the uh, the kind of lighting that he was accustomed to. It's interesting. Well, that um, on a that shoe, makes, on a shoestring that makes a lot of sense. I mean, my instinct would have been that it would have been that they would have said to him, "Oh, well, we have to have color because we want it to look modern and we don't want it to look." Um, but but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, if you think about it, he does this one little color movie, and then suddenly everything's black and black white. Black and white for, for until, uh, until 1968. Until Spartacus. And, well, well, Spartacus, which again was which somebody was, else. But he didn't choose to make a film in color yeah, and then until, he went back until and did another black and white two. movie. Yeah, it was really wasn't until 2001, in the late 60s, that yeah. he did a color film by choice. Well, and Kubrick was something of a Luddite in that you know he always would always go for simplicity over complexity as, you know, to promote efficiency. And, you know, with efficiency comes control. And you have a far greater amount of control with black and white. But you don't know that until you do something. And so this may have been the catalyst that led to, you know, um, wow. you know a, a string of black and white films, you know, to follow. Except wow. for the one uh, movie, Spartacus. Where that, he didn't have that choice. Where he, it wasn't his choice. He was brought in, you know, weeks before they uh, actually... In which case, one could make an argument that this is an incredibly important film because if you think of how utterly gorgeous Strange Love is and Lolita and Paths of Glory and how awful it would have been if those films were in color. Yeah. If, if, if Seafarers did nothing else but save us from the color versions of those movies. Yeah. And it, 
I would say that this was probably his experiment. I mean, I know that I, if um, if I was hired to do something right now, uh, you know, like an industrial, I would try to get something out of it for myself. Mm-hmm. And other than just money and knocking sure. it out and experience shooting something, because he had that already. Yeah. You know, he uh, he had a highly atoned and developed photographic style, you know, from being a stills photographer. He had worked with motion picture uh, equipment on uh, on two projects in black and white. It had to be experimentation. Yeah. And I'll bet th- there was an additional cost in doing it uh, in color. And I'll bet that he talked the seafarers into letting him do it in color. Because wow. most documentaries and newsreels of the time were all black and white. That's just me guessing. I mean, but it's a very no. It's, but it's an intelligent guess, and it makes a lot of sense because you're right. The, there would have been an expense factor in shooting in color, and it would have been the lighting would have taken more time, and you would have probably had to knock your the light levels up higher. And I guarantee, what he learned, you know, was mm-hmm. uh, one, it it doesn't look as good. Yep. You know, and when you're working on a shoestring, um, I mean, most of what Kubrick did throughout his career was, you know, most stylistically, what he did was based on when you have less, you you come up with techniques that, like, for instance, the wide lenses Mm -hmm. that he used throughout his career. Most people attribute it to sort of a visual style, and it it is a visual style, but it really grew out of having wide lenses, you know, that are shallow lenses, require less lights, and require less accurate focus pulling. And also just give small sets a sense of depth and of size. Exactly. So um, there's a very practical reason behind everything. Well, and, and the people forget how, how late in his career he was doing things actually fairly shoestring. Clockwork Orange was made very inexpensively. And as a mono film. I mean, it took Kubrick a very long time. And what, wasn't, uh, was it The Shining or was it Full Metal Jacket that was his first stereo film? I think it was... I um, think it was Full Metal it Jacket. Was Full Metal Jacket. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. No, I mean, The Shining was... was Shining was still was still in mono, and so it took him forever to adopt um, stereo because of the. That well, that's shot a, right quite, quite a cool it's shot. A beautiful, yeah. beautiful shot. The complexities of stereo, you know, it just requires a greater amount of technical skill and technicians, and you know, people who know what they're doing, and it's less accurate. And it's funny because even down to Eyes Wide Shut, even down to the last film, you know, again, everybody thinks about it as this wildly expensive film. And yet his shooting style really wasn't that wildly expensive. I mean, it, well, yes, it was whatever. It was a $60 million film. But if you think of a film with, with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman shooting for a year, that's actually not a very high number in terms of what he was spending per yeah. day on a set. When you look at what the below the line probably was, it was not $60 million. I'm sure it was uh, probably closer to $45 million. And then you shoot for a whole year, and so you do what you can to be able to have that kind of control. Yeah, he was. You know, people think of his movies as very, very big and expensive and all that, but what they cost for what he got was actually always kind of remarkable. Um, he was never somebody who threw the money around, and I think that comes comes from having spent so many years making films on a on a shoestring and and then developing techniques that that were his own. And the only way you discover that sort of stuff is by experimentation. And later on in his career, you know, he had a very long time in between movies because he was experimenting and figuring out how to do things small. Or just in ways that hadn't been done. I mean, yeah. instead of the obvious way. I mean, you know. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you look at 2001. It's a, like a, even today, technically a groundbreaking movie, both with the effects and the sets and everything about it is, is huge. 
And um, most of those, yeah, most of those techniques had never been used in a, in a mainstream film. Some of them didn't exist at all, and a lot of them certainly had never been put into a, a Hollywood movie before. And so, I mean, and also Barry Lyndon putting those NASA lenses onto Mitchell cameras was. Uh, kind of goes counter to everything I'm saying, but... (laughs) (laughs) The question I asked myself was, would Kubrick want anyone, let alone me, (laughs) sitting here talking about his work when he wasn't talking about it? The reason I'm here is because it's, you know, it's a historical document. Yes, I think it would be terribly unfair to to judge it on an artistic level, and I think you'd be horrified at the thought of people doing that. Or analyzing it. Or analyzing it. You know, why did I never see any of this early stuff? Why did I never see Fear and Desire as as a young boy and always wanting to see it? All I could ever get was like a, a still or two and then people describing mm-hmm. moments when they had seen it. And just years and years went by and finally I got a really, really bad copy of this. Mm-hmm. And I got a really, really you know gnarly copy that l- l- was unbelievably bad. It was like looking at a just staticky screen of Fear and Desire and just trying to... Even looking through what you know the the twentieth generation tape that I had to try to interpret what I was looking at, and you know why was this stuff not made available? And the answer is, well, I guess the answer is that, that Kubrick just didn't want it to be. But that to me is is sad and you know st- strange in a way. It's something I've never understood because. Well, have have you ever had any of your work that uh, you know anything that you've done that you've been embarrassed of? Oh sure. Oh, I can give you a list. But um, but to me, uh, the value of somebody who's a great artist and even seeing their early, even their missteps is just of great value. And and I've never quite understood the logic of I want to bury the fact that this exists because for anybody interested enough that they're going to sit down and watch Fear and Desire fifty years later um, or the short films fifty years later, those aren't people aren't looking to judge Stanley Kubrick and oh, is he really good? You know, those are people who are watching with already a great deal of passion and interest. It doesn't look to me like the greatest documentary for seafarers. To me, it looks like they're all just sitting around playing games mm-hmm. and eating food, getting free haircuts and whatnot. My only guess looking at this is that they're aiming this film at these at the sailor guys themselves. I mean, this wasn't a when documentary. You're at, when you're not at sea, you can actually, you know, sit around. And sit around and they're, they're half-naked women and you games, can play some games and have some drinks and... You know, I don't think this is this. That's the thing. It's an industrial. It's not a documentary. Uh, what I what I see is somebody who's coming up with practical solutions to to get the job done. It's really interesting, actually. It's like looking at a mind in process. It's like looking at the early charcoals of a great oil painter. So again, it may not have the the consistency that comes with maturing as an artist, but you can still see the talent. And there, you know, there are moments even in something as silly as this, where you go that that shot we saw of the guy up against that big board that was that's beautiful, and sort of seeing the, the roots of it, uh, I think is is exciting. The feeling looking at this that Kubrick said, "Well, if I'm going to do this, you know, let me explore some stuff that I like. If I'm going to take this." job and just do it, I'm going to, you know, I, I, what, what can I learn out of it? 
And he'd already developed a lot of his photographic eye. He'd done the two shorts, but then he'd been a photographer for Look Magazine. So he was already pretty accomplished in terms of his eye, but learning how to achieve that on film. The SIU makes sure that seafarers get the full benefit of those contracts. I would love to see now happen with somebody like Kubrick's work where he's gone and it is more like an historical document. I understand how when you know when when one first has a film being seen. The last thing I would want is somebody first seeing a film and going, and here's the other ways we did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, significance and people are looking at it years later. People are looking at it in a new way. They are looking at it to understand the process of how it was made or why how you got to where you got to. And I think on that level it has a real interest factor. And I think there's a nice built-in censorship thing, and that people who don't really care won't watch it anyway. Even if I saw the pie fight at the end of Doctor Strange Love, and I went, "Yeah, that was really terrible. It really didn't work at all." I don't think it would make me think less of the film. It would just actually, if anything, make me more admire the bravery of getting somehow from that pie fight to what would seem like a completely bleak ending. I mean, just on paper, that ending shouldn't work at all. Certainly, this exists as a historical document, and I'm not so much a film historian. I'm a student of Kubrick's work, but. You know, what more can be said about this? I hope it's exciting for people that they were able to see it finally. I mean, I know for me, when I finally got to see this or or Fear and Desire or Flying Padre, it was was very exciting. And the idea that, you know, you'll at least be able to see this in a decent print uh, is a great thing. Um, I should mention that the DVD, the other producer, when it finally went from VHS to DVD, I had um, Ed Ornella's um, kicked in. and he is a pretty he's a pretty well known director out in Hollywood as well. He directed episodes of Grey's Anatomy and Castle and that Stephen mm-hmm. King Under the Dome. I just want to mm-hmm. give him a, a shout out because he really helped out get the get the Seafarers onto DVD. Yeah. Oh, cool, uh, Alexander. Uh, yeah. Do, do you know much about the original production of the Seafarers? Did you get to know any kind of inside information on the production of? Of the film, uh, I think it was shot and uh, produced in '53, wasn't it? 1953. Right. Yeah, I, they sent me some copies of the Seafarers log, and um, I tried, I tried yeah. so hard to get as much information out of them as I could from their archives. But I mean, it just was very tricky. Um, I know that when I spoke to, um, do you know who Frank Tomasino is? Uh, no. I, I don't know whether to pronounce his name right. But he's the gentleman who first discovered um, the Seafarers as as a, as a credit for Kubrick back in the early seventies, and he'd been asked to go over to um, it, over the SIU and kind of like catalog all their little films, the little documentaries or whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, so they screened them all, and he's watching Seafarers comes up, boom, sees the, sees the name Stanley Kubrick. So he's wow. like, what, "What's going on here?" And this, I guess I think he said I spoke to this guy on the phone a couple of years ago. He's a professor down in Florida. And um and he said and he said, Oh yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, he he came in and shot that movie. Um he was and they were like, Oh, he was great. I mean, the guy who was in uh, who was featured in the Seafarers, I can't remember his name, but um the guy who works there was like a big deal. Anyway, I, it's been a while since I watched the documentary, to be honest with you. Um, I got so sick of hearing about the seafarers. When, you, when you're so involved, <laughs> in something, you just yeah. put it away at that point. And um, I think his name is Lester or something. But um, he had said that, oh, that guy is going places. That's Stanley Cooper. That kid came in there and directed that film. He's Wow, he really knew what he was doing because he basically did everything himself. Um, he yeah. used the seafarers log as like his little crew and he kind of trained them how to do things i guess with the clapper board and he just he, he, he just banged out that whole production 
you know, he'd seen, I think it's kind of well known. He, he Kubrick saw that ad in a paper, um, to write yep. that little film and, yeah. um, and they just hired the right guy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. I mean, you're, you're saying that he actually employed, so to speak, the, uh, actual, uh, seafarers to work the clapperboard and uh, be well, involved. To the sea, the, some the seafarers log is the seafarers log is like a little um, a little magazine that comes out that's that was out back in the day, and it's just like things that were going on around the world with the what, what the SIU and their influence. Mm-hmm. And so they have mm-hmm. a it's like that little newsletter thing that goes out. So that, that's what sure. the seafarers log is. Um, so he hired the staff. He brought the staff in. They he tried to train them how to do some things. <laughs> Cold life or something. I love it. I love it. From Vancouver down the long Pacific coast, around the great curve of the Gulf of Mexico, up the rim of the Atlantic from Tampa to Halifax, in every major North American port close by the waterfront, there is the headquarters of the Seafarers International Union. This is headquarters for the SIU Atlantic and Gulf Districts. More than just a building, a solidly impressive symbol of what seafarers have achieved. And like every SIU headquarters, the heart of this one is its hiring hall. Run by seafarers for seafarers. Have a book, Group 1, April the 16th. Book, Group 1, April the 16th. In this SIU hall, as in others, seafarers can pick berths on ships of many types, going almost anywhere in the world. Antwerp, Cape Town, London, Marseille, Singapore. You name it. Picking his destination is the right of every seafarer. And sometimes more than a right, a duty. In the great seafaring tradition, a duty voluntarily assumed. Every true seafarer respects courage. The courage of men of all national origins and religions that has created seafaring tradition and built the SIU. It's essentially kind of a, a corporate. A, we in England we call it a corporate film. Uh, it was kind yeah. of. Uh, uh, it, Kubrick was hired to make a corporate film, essentially by a by a corporate organisation, yeah. rather than a rather than being a creative, uh, narrative driven film. Um, yeah. yeah, that's just I just mentioned that for the listeners who might not be aware of uh, what it, what the what it's all about. And Don Hollenbeck, if I'm not mistaken, he was he was a, a, a fairly used uh, voiceover guy for, uh, as you say, corporate films and stuff. I seem yeah. to recall I, when I when I saw the seafarers, I remember thinking like, gosh, I've heard this guy's voice before. Was it like an right. old school film film strips, et cetera? And, uh, you know, uh, shorts, yes. that the, educational shorts that we were shown in public school. Yeah, that, that must yeah, have yeah. been Don, Don Hollenbeck. His voice just struck me as so familiar when I uh, finally got around to seeing the seafarers. But hey, I mean, he ain't no Hollenbeck girl. So, all right, sorry. Yeah, and and I mean that opening that opening um, dialogue that Don um, 
speaks. It's, it's quite a long, you know, it's probably a couple of minutes long, and it, and it doesn't look like he's looking at an auto cue, and it's all one take. So it must have been fairly versed in learning these long monologues. Um, so I'd imagine he, he, he'd done quite a bit of this uh, narration uh, prior to uh, the seafarers. Interesting. It would be it yeah. would be it would be cool to find out if uh, Hollenbeck at any point later in his career, after Kubrick had established himself, you know, made the connection and somebody you know just brought to his attention, hey, did you know that you, you know that that voiceover you did for uh, uh, the ISU was uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick? Stanley Kubrick? You mean the guy who made two thousand one? That you know, I just took my wife and kids to see. What he? That would have been. I mean, who knows? But I, you know, I, I can't help but uh, speculate. At some point, that must. If that came uh, to his attention, I'm sure it would have blown his mind. But I oh, think yeah. it's re- it's really cool that you point out the way that uh, y- you know your professor friend in Florida. I believe it was you said that he's he was just like, oh, this kid's going places because there do seem to be a number of uh, recollections from others and people who were around during the days of uh, him making the shorts. Uh, yeah. where people just felt like, um, yeah, I mean, th- this is, this is one to watch. Even, even a lot of the, uh, New York film critics, uh, uh, appreciation for fear and desire, although it wasn't, you know, uh, doing particularly well at the box office. And of course we know that, you know, Kubrick tried to disavow it for many years, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's shown in art house films in New York city and Europe, you know, all the time. Um, yeah. But uh, um, th- there were uh, articles I read um, in, in this book or that book or, you know, online where, it, you know, there are actual uh, uh, critics reviews of fear and desire from, uh, you know, m- mainly New York critics. And they're all saying the same thing. They were like, you know, Stanley Kubrick is a name to remember. This young man is someone to watch and we expect, you know, some really interesting things from him in the future. I, I just love yeah. that because, you know, the, the world of his shorts is uh, kind of in its own right, a, a standalone thing in his canon, his body of work. And yet there's the connection. There's the, the, the synergy of the two worlds colliding because, um, you know, you can, you can look at, at, at seafarers and say, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, some was, oh, it's not really a Kubrick film. You hear that kind of crap. Um, oh, yeah. But then, but then you go, no, I mean, I, I, I look at, you know, his choice of angles, his lighting, the composition, oh, yeah. the, and it's, it's clear that he, he's there. His imprint oh, yeah. is there. Yeah. Yeah. There's even a tracking shot in there. I think he did with some, probably some yeah. sort of dolly through the yep. cafeteria. Where mm-hmm. he, like, if you could see, if you notice, he taped up the, uh, I guess they had mirrored like pillars there, and so he had. It looks like he taped them up with like uh, packing or something, and uh, so they didn't reflect the, the right. camera. We always really wanted that shot where they tracked through the, the kitchen. <laughs> A good seafarer's headquarters has to begin where others leave off. For seafarers coming ashore in the port away from home, it ought to be and is a second home, where no man off a ship is a stranger to the rest, and where the things he needs are close at hand. Like this SIU cafeteria, open to the public, but mainly for the convenience of seafarers. A few a little a little while later, um, 
everybody, when Blu-ray started coming out, um, I got a call from Kino Lorber in New York, mm-hmm. and they wanted to put the Seafarers on, on, on their Fear and Desire disc, and which is great, perfect timing for me because I just kind of run out of the DVDs, and so I was thinking about the Blu-ray, but not really, not really into it. But um, mm-hmm. so they called, like they kind of offered a deal, and I was like, oh, that's great. They'll just take it off my hands, and they can go do whatever. And um, <clears throat> and I mean, they're such a great company. They did a brilliant job with Metropolis recently. And oh so, yeah, oh yeah, I own it. So I um, and so I talked to this this gentleman on the phone about it, and I said, you know what, you really got to get Day of the Fight and Flying Padre on this disc. And the guys didn't know what those were, and so <laughs> we had a chat about them, and I was like, you've got to do it, um, because I couldn't pull it off, but maybe you can. Um, so I gave them the contact information for free one, and I guess they, I guess they worked it out, and they were willing to put it on that, uh, on that, on that Blu-ray. Although, for some reason, didn't get um, it. The American disc does not have those two films on there. I don't know why they didn't didn't end up on there. So if you want to get Day of the Fight and um, Flying Padre on Blu-ray, you're gonna have to get the uh, region two european edition <laughs> is that is that wow is that so i did not know that i mean yeah. I, of course i have the american uh i right. didn't know that the european well there you go Stephen. you've got uh an exclusive that i can't get my hands on yeah well I, i've got that version that's cool yeah we've talked about this before that and i can't believe that never came up that uh there's a difference between the two. No, I didn't. I, I, no, I, I had no idea either that uh, that they weren't on the uh, the American version. I, th- I just I'm, I just assumed they were. Mine only yeah. has the seafarers. I mean, I'm I'm looking at uh, the Blu-ray as uh, as we speak. Um, wow. So. So when uh, it, it came time to license it to Kino Lorber. And uh, they reached out to you. You said that they offered you a great deal. I'm just curious, as an outsider to the industry, like how does that work? In the sense that, like, you know, uh, did you sign a one-off deal, but get to have your name as licensed by Alexander Pietrzak, or do you get residuals? Yeah. yeah how does that? How I signed a non. I signed a non-exclusive deal with them, so I can do whatever I want with the seafarers if if I so please. Um, I also signed another contract with them um, if they wanted to do something about it worldwide, put it on TV, and I would get residuals from that. But they had some new management come in over there, Kino, and they just didn't go forward with that after after the Blu-ray came out. So, mm. uh, you know, if they if they ever if they ever want to put it on television internationally, I guess I could make some money off that. But so far, they haven't done it, and I don't know. I'm just sort of out of my hands now, you know. Do you have any recollections about how you felt when you got uh, approval from the Kubrick estate? Um, like, what what were the final steps in that process? And uh, I imagine you must have, you know, been over the moon, so to speak. I guess it was around 2000, maybe. Um, I didn't really need their approval, but I wanted it. Good man. Um, that, that was the situation. It just meant a lot to me because I think that people... Um, would have seen that on their video store and shelves and thought maybe it was a little iffy. And mm-hmm. to have 
them approved the artwork and the text and and uh, meant a lot to me. And they were they were enthusiastic about that because um, it's their and it's part of the canon. So I mean, I they, I mean they when I first sent that artwork that was used with that, that silhouette against that <clears throat> against that huge uh, uh, board, you know, they kind of they had some ideas about really punching up that artwork. It's initially looked a little bit more subdued. And so mm-hmm. they had they uh, the idea about having that little orange that red sort of um, um, circle at the bottom, uh, really punching it up about what it was yeah. on there. That yeah. that came from that came from them. They were like, you should really sell this thing up a little bit more because I was being a little low key, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understated. Yeah. So yeah. I was. Well, that- I mean, it was a great feeling to have them kind of approve it. And I even got oh, I even got um. um I even got a print signed by Christiane. She sent a print to me. Um, time. So that was cool. Was that same one that you had, Stephen, that you posted yesterday. And that's when he's sitting out there in the. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can speak for Stephen uh, uh, when I say that, you know, it speaks very highly of you that you would uh, go the extra mile to get the blessing of, his estate yeah. and his family, because I mean, as you know, like in Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, if there's one, you know, mission statement above all of our others, it's that, you know, we're just about, you know, honoring, respecting the legacy, always being respectful to uh, his estate and the family. And I personally just think that's really cool that you would, uh, you had the chance to put it out on your own, but you said, you know what? I'd feel much better, you know, and uh, and then they came back with uh, enthusiasm. That's its yeah. own cool. That's its own kind of cool story to me, man. Yeah, thank you. Today, every seafarer beginning a voyage goes up the gangplank, secure in the knowledge that he and his family can depend on the protection of a great organization, an organization the seafarers themselves, with their own intelligence and effort, have brought into being. You've seen the story of how the seafarers, conscious of their rights and their responsibility together for their common objectives, dignity, security, a better way of life for themselves and for their families. This is the story of the SIU. So, all right, let me get to the Barry Lyndon story because this is cray cray and uh, <laughs> we we got to hear it. I'm just going to kind of turn over the mic to you and tell the story and let it unfold and take your time. We got our listeners are going to love this. So, okay. Alexander, go. OK, so. um I, I started out, um, I lived in England when I was um, younger. I was born in Reading, Berkshire. And uh, I've lived in the United States for a long time. But when I was a little kid, I went to school at Westwood Farm Elementary, um, also in Reading. And um, we would go on these school trips, various places. Anyway, one one place that we did go to, I guess, was uh, Blenheim Palace. And we went to Longleat and a bunch of different places. Um so I remember going on this field uh, on this field trip, and um, years later, 
and I'll just get back to that in a second, but years later, the first time I watched Barry Lyndon on probably around 1990, I, I watched it on cable one night. I came home from work. It was on. I, said, I haven't seen this yet. I want, I want to have a look. So as soon as it came up on, you know, I was watching it and it was like, these scenes kept coming up and I was like, oh my God, I've like been there. I've been right. I've stood right there. What's, mm-hmm. I was like, this is weird. And then another scene would come up and go, this is kind of weird. I'm and it was, it wasn't like deja vu because it was like, I know what's on the other side of that door where when you walk through, it's like this and looks like, I was like, this is kind of strange. So I asked my mom about it and she didn't really know anything. And so I was like, well, I don't know what to say about that. So fears went by and I was reading, really got into Kubrick and I read a few accounts of uh, people kind of um, walk, being, uh, having to walk through the set of Barry Lyndon um, and I was like, well, that's really during. Um, so what would happen? What would what would happen is, um, like, we were on this trip and we walked. We were walking through down this hall, and there was these two gigantic doors, and they made us all wait. And there's something going on behind the doors, and so we're like, we're kind of waiting around for a couple of minutes, and eventually they let us in, mm-hmm. and we walked. Um, they kind of hurried us through, but on on the left, I remember there was kind of like guess maybe some sort of lighting rig or something. There was some sort of temporary light that was there. It was kind of bright, and there was a scrim or something, or something going mm-hmm. on behind. I couldn't really tell, but I looked over to the right, and there was a chair, and there was uh, two guy. One guy was sitting in the chair, and the other guy was standing next to the chair, and um, and uh, they did not look happy, <laughs> and. <laughs> And they would go, I think one of them had their arms, like an arms folded. And usually when you're a little oh, kid, you're, yeah. you expect everyone to be happy. You want to be, hey, yeah, yeah. you know, right, right. guys look kind of ticked off. And I didn't know why. They were like looking at us like, and just like annoyed. So anyway, didn't think anything of it. But then I read these accounts in these books about, well, when they were shooting Barry Lyndon, they, it was, the production was being interrupted all the time. Um, during some of these scenes by tour groups that kept going through, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was, and I, I was like, Oh my God, is that, could that possibly be that, that our school group walked through the set of Barry Lyndon? I mean, wow. what the, I mean, how could I ever prove that? I mean, I had this recollection of it happening and the account that I was reading in, I think in the Laborda book and, um, and a couple mm-hmm. other mentioned it. And I was like, God, that seems, seems like it seems kind of far off that I could, really prove that you know i don't really have anything to go on i didn't see any actors i just saw these it was a crew it was a film crew and so i contacted around 2000 i don't know three maybe i contacted blaine and palace and i was like maybe they have a record maybe they have a record of who visited the um schools and the, just a record with the projections that were shot there during that period they, and they were great to deal with they were really nice people but they didn't really have any yeah. kind of record of any of that so i was like well just forget it and um i I said it's possible that i was on the set and so a couple of months ago it came up again on your on your news group and i was and and i was like you know what maybe it's time to start digging around again so i um caught i went on to blenheim's website and it kind of really they've really expanded it and now they have a, a section just on films and they have a PDF of all the films and TVs and er- TV shows that ever shot there. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't there before. And the only thing during that period that's listed now is Barry Lyndon. That is it. Wow. Um, 
there's nothing else. There's something like 72 that wouldn't have counted. And after Barry Lyndon, the next film that shot there was 1980, the early eighties, the Mel Brooks film, history of the world part one. Oh, no kidding. Oh my God. Huge fan. Yeah. So there was nothing, there's nothing else. It, it could be unless, unless there's something that's not listed on there. Um, that they just didn't, they just forgot about or something. Yeah, I, yeah. There's a chance. There's a, there's a chance that I got to walk through the set of Barry Lyndon. Well, possibly. Po- quite possibly. Well, now that brings us to, you know, an interesting moment and or opportunity with the podcast, you know, because this is going to be on iTunes and it's going to be out there for posterity for all time, theoretically. So, um, I would love it if you would repeat uh, the name of the school where you were at the uh, the year and uh, that initial information you brought up, because if there is anyone out there listening who can corroborate perhaps an old classmate of yours who was there, I mean, this would be great, not just for, you know, anyone else to know, but specifically you, man. I would love it if we yeah, could help you find out for sure. Yeah, well, the, the school was Westwood Farm Elementary. It's in you know, Barcher County, Reading. And both of these the places we went to, Lanham and Longley, they're not that far on the map from the school. So it wasn't like some big trip out. I mean, it was just a day trip. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't really remember much else that would be useful. I remember there was kind of like some big trucks parked out front at some point. Um, and I could see that there's some, there some sort of production going on there when we were going through this tour. And so... There is a chance that um, we walked through the set of Kubrick, Kubrick set, and possibly got a maybe a scowl from Kubrick himself. We don't know. <laughs> That's so funny. If only I could prove it. You know, it's been a while since we've been able to revisit this great interview, and we'd like to thank Alexander Pietrzak for being so patient while we went about trying to find our feet as podcasters and finally being able to help his story come into the spotlight. I had forgotten Alexander also had involvement with one of the quintessential documentaries on Dr. Strangelove just goes to show you what can unintentionally get put on the back burner while... As John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. But from acorns, mighty oaks grow. And it was mighty cool of Alexander to share such a truly unique story as his efforts to save Kubrick's third short film from the dustbin of history. We're glad those efforts were successful. We hope you are too. Kubrick's universe really does encompass land, space, air, and sea. This interview was recorded back in 2018. Three crazy years, one horrible pandemic, and a beautiful new rover named Perseverance searching for water on Mars later. We are proud to help Alexander bring his important contribution into the discussion of all things Stanley. I'm your host, Jason Furlong, thanking you on behalf of our contributors, Mark Lentz and James Marinaccio, as well as, of course, the man who makes it all happen, the chairman of the soundboard, our amazing producer, Stephen Rigg. Until next time, keep your rudder amidships and the bow 
pointed due north. Experiment number one concluded. Number one, number one, number one, number one. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.